0: Maybe I'm taking the question a little bit too literal, but I think if you want to get, if you want to continue to improve in the long run, you have to accept that there's going to be periods where you're really fit and other periods where you're resting, giving yourself a break and losing fitness. So I I think um, a big mistake that a lot of self-coach athletes make is that they they do try and just kind of like build continuously, and they sort of fall into this um, you know black hole.
1: What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Matchbox Podcast presented by Ignition Coach Co. I'm your host, Adam Saban, and with me today, I've got my wonderful co-host, Andrew Jeanette, as well as Ignition co-founder, Dylan Johnson. So this week, we're bringing you round two of question and answers. Uh, We had so many questions come in before the first episode that we had to do another one because we didn't quite get through all of them in the first go-around. So that's what we're getting into this week. Uh, We'll kick off the uh, show as usual with talking about a little race recap from the last couple weeks. Uh, but then we get right into these questions. Uh, this time we do get through all the questions. Uh, this is not intended to be a deep dive on any one subject. We're just kind of scratching the surface, but giving you some tips to go along with your questions. So if you do want more information, feel free to send us an email or drop us a, a DM on Instagram uh, and, and let us know if one of these topics are something you want us to cover on a more in-depth uh, deep dive basis. Uh, we'd be happy to do so on a future episode. So let's get into it. What's up guys? How's it going? Hey, good. How you doing? I'm doing well. We got Dylan Johnson back with us. Andrew Jeanette, myself, and we are missing our usual Drew Dizzle-Dillman. Not sure what he's doing today, but he is not with us. Uh, so today we are bringing you round two of question and answers. Uh, we had so many questions come in from our request last week, and we only got through about half of them. So we wanted to follow up with everyone else who sent in questions. So we're gonna be doing that today in the second half. Uh first off, though, we're gonna start with a little bit of race recap. I think all three of us might have a couple races to talk about. So we're gonna kick kick off the, the episode with, with some race recap. Who wants to go first, guys? Why don't you go first? I'll it. go first. <laughs> all right, Andrew, you can start us off. Here I go.
0: So yeah, I was racing uh <laughs> Wilmington Grand Prix with my road team in, in Delaware. Um it was a a really short time trial and a crit. Um, the time trial is, was really exciting to me because it's a typically like a six and a half minute time trial, which like suits my rider type better than, you know, like a traditional, you know, like a 40 K time trial, for instance, um, sort of technical, um, and unique to this edition was that it was wet. So this is, um, A time trial that features like some really fast kind of technical corners um, and some cobbles as well, which is pretty interesting. Um, And it's, it's the TT sort of undulates. um, And so I sort of like implemented a pacing strategy where I would, you know, like hit it really hard on all kind of the shorter, you know, let's say like less than a minute uphills and sort of like take it easy in all the places where you'd be going really fast you know, and like more Watts wouldn't, wouldn't really like add to your, um, speed that much. Um, and I like nearly got some comms on the course. Like the final climb is, it's called monkey Hill. It's a cobbled section. I was like, I don't know, fourth on that within the TT at the end of the TT. And, uh, yeah, I ended up doing, like, not that good. <laughs> so it turns out that my pacing strategy was wrong, and I think it it, it had something to do with <laughs> it. It's sort of the, the moral of the story. Um, and what I attribute that to, um, in my so my teammate got third, um, and he did, like, a much more even pacing strategy for, like, a similar amount of power. He went, like, 20 seconds faster, which is really significant for such a short TT. Um, and I think it was because the corners were... So slow, like you—you you weren't carrying as much momentum around the course. So from like the uphills to the downhills, you didn't—you weren't going fast enough to let off the gas. Um, so that—that that, that was a mistake. And then mm-hmm. on uh, Saturday we raced—we uh, raced the Crib. Um, it was like the same sort of thing, you know, a little bit of rain, um, relatively technical course, some up and some down. Um, and we were sort of like the, the biggest team there. So we, we rode super hard and just were really aggressive until we forced a move of like 18 guys of which we were five. (laughs) So, um, yeah, um, we had, we had five out of, you know, maybe 18 guys and, um, you know, eventually we, we decided we weren't going to get away from that group. Um, so we, so we rode, um, and just controlled for the last handful of laps and, um, fellow ignition coach, 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 Scott McGill still beat us, but that's all right. <laughs> he won the TT. What, what happened? Well, he's there? Really good. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, <laughs> what happened there? He what happened really there? Good. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So, um, Scott played a super smart race and was sort of just like sitting on me at the end. I think he, he probably knew that I was going to be the guy to sprint. Um, and I was feeling really good and, you know, like everything was going according to plan. Like we, we only rode as fast as we needed to, you know, kind of leading up to the final lap so we could like ramp it up. And, uh, with one and a half laps to go, um, I was having some like gastrointestinal issues. So I think maybe it was the rainwater, um, or maybe it was, um, too high a concentration mm. of super fuel in my bottles. <laughs> and, uh, I kind of started to yak. Um, so I just like pulled out of line and like, you know, flicked my elbow for the guy who was sweeping for me to come through. Um, and, uh, and then I, I opened up a huge gap to. Sc-
2: I think we lost him. Dang. Oh, all right. Where, why is he recording outside? <laughs>
1: I don't know. Uh, we'll see if he comes back in, and I'll edit this out. Andrew's back with us. So you were saying that you had gastrointestinal issues from drinking rainwater. Was that part of your hydration strategy or something? <laughs> yeah, so it was it was a super wet crit. Um,
0: and so, you know, I'm sitting on my, my teammate Taylor's wheel for, you know, I uh, you know, I don't know, the majority of the race, like once the selection was made, I just kind of perked myself behind him. And uh yeah, there's like rain water blasting up in your face and you're breathing hard so your mouth might be open and I, you know, I the truth is is I don't know I don't know what it was that bothered me, but um that would that's the, the maybe the leading theory. <laughs> you know, you always like hear about the uh, guys in Europe like getting you know cow shit in their mouth from, from
1: rainwater. So maybe something like that. Yeah, it could be. Did you change anything with like your, uh, mid race nutrition or anything? I did. You know, this is funny. This is actually like, um,
0: almost like a good redaction from our last podcast episode. We had a question about how many grams of carbohydrate is appropriate to do during, uh, criterium, uh, you know, like another short, you know, 60, 90 minute event. Um, so something that I tried differently is a really small change. Um, is that I did five scoops of super fuel instead of three or four. Um, and that's, that's all I drank during the race. I didn't also drink water. Um, and I think maybe the, the concentration was a little high for me to tolerate. Um, so that, that, that is a, another theory as to what
1: bothered me. Um, you dude, you just said you drank rainwater. I mean, that should have offset it, right? <laughs> Not intentionally, but yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. So it was it
0: was really unique. It was it was something like that has never happened to me before, so I um it's hard
1: hard to interpret. <laughs> so did you're gonna, gonna go to the line for the sprint or did you have to pull out with one and a half to go? I mean, I just, I kept riding, but <laughs>
0: I had to sit up because I was like sort of bent over on my bike. Um, and I tried to just kind of like get out of people's way a little bit, um, just just because it's sort of like a safety issue at that point. Um, but then I, I kind of, you know, got my composure and like kept riding. So I just rolled in um, and yeah, I don't know, there was a check for me at the end of the race, so... <laughs> It was like <laughs> it was okay, but that was only because we had sort of shredded the field.
2: Hmm. Mm. Nice. Is
1: that it. That was the whole that's weekend. Still,
0: <laughs> yeah, that's it. Right. We did a grand. I didn't Fondo know if there was ones. a
1: road race or anything.
0: No, no, sadly not. I, you know, I wish there were. And we, you know, we we talked to the promoter about it a little bit. And road races are really expensive to put on. Um, grand fondos are far less expensive and bring in way more money. So sure. they, mm-hmm. they, they put on a grand Fondo, which we attended and, um, it was, we're staying in Philadelphia. Um, and the Fondo was in Wilmington. So we, we were driven to the Fondo. We did the Fondo, which was 60 miles. And then we rode the 40 miles home. So that was pretty fun.
2: Cool. Sweet. All
1: right. <clears throat> well I'll go next cause mine's probably a little shorter than Dylan's. So for all the, th- loyal listeners out there, you, you might know by now that I'm in the middle of a local gravel series. So yesterday was week three of four in the first two weeks. I got beat pretty heavily by local gravel hero, Kenny Pike. Uh, so I was bummed about that. The first two weeks um, fitness just did not feel where it needed to be. Uh, but yesterday came in pretty hot, felt super strong, Got a nice solid warm up in. Rode up to the race. Um, what I wasn't expecting was Ken attacked from the gun. So I and, it, and the funny thing was on the ride up to up to the race, I was kind of dealing with like a little bit of stomach issues. Um, I, I didn't really watch what I was eating. Like two hours before, I just mixed a bunch of leftovers together and kind of scarfed it down. Uh, and it hadn't quite settled by the time I'd gotten on my bike. So on the ride up, I was like, uh, eh, hopefully the race is kind of chill at the start. So I have some more time to digest this food. Uh, but that didn't happen. Ken attacked from the gun. Uh, I bridged up to him pretty quickly and then countered, um, and sent like a five or seven minute flyer off the front. Uh, and then it was just like pretty much hard the rest of the race. Uh, Ken bridged up to me and him and I kind of broke away with I don't know, probably 15 minutes into the race. It was just the two of us. Uh, they're like 23 miles. So they're about an hour long. Um, and yeah, we were riding strong together. And I sent like four or five other attacks trying to break free of Ken. Uh, and he he kept just like diesel rolling me back. Um, like he He wasn't accelerating like I was hoping he would. I kind of knew I had a little bit better punch than he did yesterday, but... His threshold's still just like way higher than mine. So he would just like kind of diesel his way back to me each time. So ended up coming down to a sprint. And I have not been working on my sprint at all. So uh my measly 1031 watts was not enough to break the string. Um, and Ken got me by like a bike length at the sprint. So Uh, I was bummed to lose three weeks in a row now, but we're getting closer. Got one more week left. So we'll, we'll see what I've got up my sleeve for next week. But fitness is finally coming around. We did like 320 some normalized for an hour. So it was like pretty hard effort. Uh, I weigh 145 pounds. So that was like five Watts per kilo basically. Um, so yeah, it was hard effort, but felt super good. Felt strong the whole time. Um, yeah, pretty, pretty stoked.
2: Nice. Nice man. Um, sweet. I guess I'm next. Um, yeah. So yeah, serious. this past weekend was, uh, was gravel locos in Heiko, Texas. And I was pretty excited for this race cause I did pretty well at the race last year. Um, I got fourth place last year and and while it was a stacked field last year, I don't think it was quite as deep a field. Um, like the same super fast riders that were there last year, like Pete Stetna, Lawrence Tendam, Ted King, they were all there this year as well. But then there were you know fifteen other, twenty other super fast riders that were that got the word that this is one of the gravel races to be at, um, including a bunch of Euro guys too as well. So that's. That's interesting um so it was a stacked and deep field uh this year and on top of that probably the most significant factor is that the high temperature was 100 degrees and according to my wahoo when i looked at training peaks afterwards the highest temperature that my wahoo recorded was 109 degrees so it was really hot And there's absolutely no shade on that course. So you're just roasting in the sun all day. Um, And heat acclimation is obviously such a critical factor when we're talking about temperatures like that. So I've, uh, in North Carolina, it's been in the 60s, 70s-ish. We've had a few 80-degree days, but that's few and far between. So I haven't been riding in hot temperatures, but I have been using a, a little portable sauna after my rides to try to heat acclimate. Um, probably not using. What is a portable look like. sauna? It's like a little. It's like a, a box that you sit in, and your head pokes <laughs> out the top, and then you crank oh crank that thing up to one hundred and forty degrees, and you just sweat. And uh, why why do you want your head sticking out the top? Well, I don't know. You might die if you didn't stick out the top. It's so hot. so uncomfortable. It, it, well, if yeah, it, but it it normal on the top, it, would,
0: it wouldn't be a portable sauna anymore. It would just be a box. right? I guess it would just be a um, Like a tinfoil
2: lined <laughs> paper box. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you, you brought that with you on this road trip? I did bring it with me. Um, although I don't know if I'll need it because it's been 95 to 100 degrees every day here anyway. Hmm. So but uh yeah i i don't know if i've been using it as frequently as i should i've been using it three like three times a week which really you should probably be using it five or six times a week after you ride to try to you know get some heat acclimation in if you're not actually riding in hot hot temperatures so uh For the race itself, I felt I did probably about as well as I could have given my current acclimation status, uh, which is not very acclimated. And I would say that I think ninety miles in, I I just started roasting. Like my head felt physically hot, and I, you know, I was I was kind of trying to manage how much water I was drinking because. I I felt like I was going to run out of water by the time I hit the next aid station, which is never good when it's that hot. You should just be drinking as much as, as your body wants. Um, so at mile 90, I dropped off the group and I was looking at the power, uh, that got me dropped. And it was definitely like, it should be, should have been completely sustainable on a normal day, but when it's that hot, uh, it was hard to sustain. It was like there was like a, I think a eleven minute section where they were going pretty hard before I got dropped. Where the normalized power was like three hundred five, which mm. should have been no big deal for me to hold three hundred five normalized mm. for eleven minutes on a normal day, but uh, when it was a hundred degrees that and I was starting to cook myself, getting a little bit dehydrated, that was that was enough to do it. So I rode I rode in with the second group on the road. Um, and we had a sprint finish. I think there were either five or six of us in that second group. And out of those five or six, I got second, which I'm not much of a sprinter, so I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> and that landed me in 12th place. So nice. No good nice. one. Yeah. Uh, a guy from Holland, Jasper, I'm going to butcher his last name. It starts with an O. I'm not even going to attempt it. <laughs> So were second the Euro was guys, too. <laughs> were they over here for, cause they're doing their own mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Euro guy got second or first and second. And then obviously Lawrence 10 was in there and he, I think he got seventh or eighth or something. Um, Kiel Reinen got, got third. Mm hmm. Yeah. Thanks. Nice.
0: Wow.
2: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so it was an interesting race. I, I'm I'm very impressed at the ten or so riders that were in the front group. I mean, they seem to really handle the heat like fine. I don't know what they've been doing, if they've been sitting in a sauna for the past month or or what, but uh you know, usually when a race is that hot, I feel like I feel like the whole thing just falls apart and it's it's like one or two guys at the front kind of slogging to the finish but it was a solid group of 10 riders that that basically sprinted it out at the end i think the dude who won had a had a small a small gap like 30 seconds but yeah hey
0: what's the time course for heat acclimation uh
2: i th- i mean god I, I did i did a video on heat acclimation so i should remember this I know um, some and, of the
0: adaptations are, are actually pretty quick. Um, yeah. I don't like, remember. You know, plasma I don't,
2: volume can happen pretty fast. I right. Think. I need to go. I actually need to go back and look at the research because I, I did a video on this, but it was a while ago. I want to say I'm going to say like if you want to be completely heat acclimated, it's something like 10 days. I could be wrong on mm. that.
0: Yeah. So less less than altitude.
2: Yeah. Which which would um, make sense. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the physiological changes that happen with heat acclimation are similar to altitude, though. So, um, you know, sometimes people suggest that if you are going to a high altitude race, but you can't live at high altitude or ride at high altitude, do heat training instead. Heard that. So, um, but anyway, I mean, I, I personally, I think that if you're doing a hot race like Unbound. Um, Heat acclimating for Unbound would be just as important as altitude acclimating for, say, Leadville. Mm. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, think, I think it's equally important. So I'm taking it very seriously, and I'm planning to—Unbound uh, is two and a half weeks away. I'm planning to spend the next week and a half here in uh, Lockhart, Texas, which is south of Heiko— and every single day it looks like the high is between 95 and 100 degrees and i'm waiting until the afternoon when it's the hottest part of the day to ride in the hottest part of the day every single day so so
1: unbound is what you have next that's what you're training for so are you will you be doing any like structured work
2: in the heat of the day like that or are you just going out and doing like zone two rides uh yeah i'll be doing structured work in the heat of the day um pretty much from now till unbound, it's just going to be like short punchy tune up rides. Uh, There's mostly because I'm recovering from gravel locos and then I'm tapering for unbound. So I'm probably not going to do some, some crazy long temp unbound specific tempo workout. Um, And, uh, and when you're doing a really short high intensity ride, at least for me, I can kind of get it in before, uh, before the heat really starts to be detrimental to my performance. Cause you know, the thing with heat is that the longer you're in the heat, the worse it is for your performance. You know, sure. you could do, you could do a, you could do a five minute effort in a hundred degrees and it's hardly going to affect it at all because you haven't been in a hundred degrees for, for hours on end. But if you're doing a, a, uh, you know, a 200 mile race in a hundred degrees or 150 mile race in a hundred degrees. And you have to be in a hundred degrees for, you know, five to 10 hours. It obviously really starts to affect performance. So will you,
1: since, since a lot of your rides are going to be shorter, you know, I'm guessing three hours or less, will you spend time outside after those rides to
2: continue the heat acclimation process? Yeah, that would probably be optimal. Although I will say I went for... I just did two hours yesterday in, I think it was 95 degrees. And when I got back, I was like, I need AC right now. I need AC and a cold <laughs> drink right now. I'm so hot. <laughs> so And I did bring... I that did means bring you got some work to do. You got, got to make I know. those adaptations I quick. Know. Um, I did bring the portable sauna with me, so I could... I could use the portable sauna after I ride as well. I I will say that thing is, is extremely uncomfortable. Um, you know, I, I usually try to like, I don't know, scroll through Instagram or, or watch some YouTube videos while I'm just sitting in there doing nothing. But there gets to a point where I don't even want to do that. I'm just so uncomfortable. I just want to sit in, in my own sweat and misery. So, so you said your, so your head is
1: outside of the machine. Yeah. So your head is like in the
2: AC, like cooling off. Like, does that help at all? Because you're, yeah. yeah that's how's your good, head going to be acclimated? That is a good question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're not heat acclimating your head, right? That's why you, you felt like your head was so hot at Travolocos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a very good point. Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe, uh. Maybe they should make a portable sauna with a head heater. Maybe you need to wear a hat. Yeah, never seen was- sauna hats before.
0: No, you should look it up. They're pretty okay. funny. <laughs> pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> they're actually so they're like wool caps, but they're actually meant to keep your head cooler. Mm. It's like um, it's like an insulating thing. Um, so it's, it's sort of counterintuitive, but right. Andrew, you got anything coming up? Rochester Grand Prix this weekend. Um, mm-hmm. so another, another crit, this one's part of the American crit cup. So, um, we'll get kind of all the, the top teams coming. So it, we're sort of, um, going up, you know, in the, the level of competition this weekend. So we'll see if we can, um, you know, do, do what we did last weekend, and you know, um, have it have the same effect. Um, I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully no rainwater in the mouth. Definitely going to play with uh, the proportions of super fuel to water this weekend. Um, you know that that's something that I'm like eager to to resolve. So, um, really hoping for good opportunity to sprint.
1: Sweet. Sweet. Uh, and I'll be heading to Wisconsin for the Englewood Pro XCT. Uh, it's uh, there's a short track race Friday afternoon and then the xco on saturday Uh, and it's been a while since i've done like a high level xc race so i'm pretty excited about it uh be fun good competition uh course looks fun so i'll report back on that but that's kind of what i got in the immediate future here andrew's got me tuned up pretty well for it so pretty pretty stoked to see what happens all right ready for some questions Mm -hmm. Let's do it. So this first one's a good one. So this one comes from Christian Culpepper. He's a fellow CX racer or maybe former CX racer, He might call himself at this point. Um, He lives down in Texas and he asks, how do you balance other hobbies slash responsibilities while still remaining your best?
0: I think you might be most (laughs) qualified to answer this, Adam. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Yeah, so I'll, I'll start here. So, um, so, you it's actually
2: funny. Him, like, so I don't
1: have other hobbies or responsibilities. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? That's what I was going <laughs> to say. So, so Christian here is a, like I said, he's a fellow uh, elite CX racer, now converted to golfer. So we can kind of relate on that level here. Um, and kind of from what I've, what I've been able to tell is, you know, Christian's kind of got, gone deep end into golfing, which is awesome. Uh, stuck for him for that, but I think he still kind of misses the bike a bit. Uh so maybe this question is about like, you know, how could he stay uh you know, get back into race shape or stay in race shape while still pursuing other hobbies. And it it doesn't have to be golf and and cycling, it could be anything. Um but I think I think it's really good. It's a it's a really good question, but it's it's really good to have a balance. Uh if you're if you're an ultra elite athlete and you're trying to perform your best, uh you you might have to limit the amount of exposure you have to other hobbies. Um but it'll it just depends on what those other hobbies are. Um, but you know what I what I try and do is and I, and I've talked with Andrew about this is um, like for me so i'm I'm pursuing pretty high level of bike racing and golf this year and what I'm having to do is kind of periodize both where I have certain times where I'm putting a lot of emphasis on one of the disciplines and then other times where I'm putting emphasis on the other discipline just because I simply don't have, 50 hours a week to train kind of budget out like 25 to 30 total hours between the two sports. Um, and the way that I do this is I, I try and just segment it, like do one thing in the morning and one thing in the afternoon. That way I can kind of uh, compartmentalize all of my work and other responsibilities during the daytime. And then those two activities tend to be kind of separated by this middle of the day work, work and other stuff going on. Uh, and that just helps me kind of stay focused in the moment but i'd say that's that's the biggest thing is like if you're if you're juggling a lot of different things or if you have other hobbies that you're focusing on you have to really just one plan out your day plan out your week ahead of time so you you know you have a set schedule that you're trying to adhere to and once you have that set you just have to stay in the moment you know, whatever, whatever it is that's on your schedule at that time that you're focusing on, just try and stay present in that and not think about all the other things that you have going on later or the next day. Uh, and just really, yeah, just stay focused on on that one thing that you have going on. Um, so like, you know, for me, if, if I'm playing golf in the morning, I usually try to just stay focused on golf. I don't worry about my workout in the later in the day. I try and set up my day so that I'm not focused on like checking emails or work or anything like that uh, and just you know, compartmentalize a lot of these different areas in my life. Um, and then likewise in the afternoon when I get off from my workout, I know I've already gotten all my other stuff done for the day, so I can just focus on smashing my workout. Um, and then also utilizing like your recovery days. So, you know, a day that you're, you're taken off the bike or, or maybe just have a short workout on the bike, uh, you know, try and use that time to fit some of the other stuff in that can help you, set you up for success the next day. Um, maybe don't do something super strenuous on your recovery day if like recovery is supposed to be the emphasis of that day uh so like if you if you are going to like for me if i am going to go play golf i i will always take a cart instead of like walking the golf course to try and help minimize the amount of energy expenditure um or i just take you know take the day off of playing or only play nine holes or something um for you that could be you know maybe you, you get some chores done or something that you know yeah you might be on your feet and kind of doing some stuff but you're not like uh, you know, expending a bunch of energy to do that. Um, but I think for me, like the, the the key, the key aspect is like, you know, I have a set schedule each day that schedule, you know, then gets expanded out to each week. And then I look at kind of like the whole month. So like this month right now started the month, I had a golf tournament ending the month with a pre big bike race. So like kind of front loaded a lot of my golf training early on in the month, Right now, we're focused on this Pro XCT coming up this weekend. So, I'm not playing as much golf right now. I'm not as worried about it. Next month, it's going to be kind of a balance. I've got a couple big bike races, a couple big golf tournaments. So, like, you know, I've got to kind of just structure it in so that I'm able to touch on both equally, um, but do so in a way where it's where I can plan it out. It's not stressful. Uh, I know what I have going on each day. Everything's in my phone calendar, like, you know, Google Calendar. So, I can really easily just see, like, okay, you know, this. 90 minutes is dedicated to you know this you know work stuff or maybe like doing some chores and then this three-hour training session can be just focused on training i don't have to worry about anything else other than getting my bike ride in or golf session in Um, and that's really helpful so just make sure you're planning out your day uh, and trying to stay present and and focused in the moment you've all still (laughs) in
2: Yeah, I, uh, I I just left halfway through that because. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, I actually needed to charge my computer, but I'm sure yeah, whatever so you guys have any other super tips, interesting.
1: Anyone else? No, I mean, that was, that was you guys might not type. have other hobbies, but I'm sure you have athletes to do. But that's you know the that's that's generally how I try and approach my own balancing mm-hmm. and, and encourage my athletes to do that as well.
0: No, I think I think you do a really good job of that. And the, the biggest point that I always like to drive home, and this is something you already touched on, is, um, you know, oftentimes when we have less time on the bike, maybe it's a recovery week or recovery day, we want to fill that time back up with with other activities. But if your other hobby is something really strenuous, I think you need to exercise some some restraint there, um, because it's very easy to take a recovery week. Um, and make it not a recovery week because you've saved all of your chores or, you know, um, time surfing or whatever your hobby is for that week. Um, and so I think it's important just to remember that that a recovery week is, is not just a recovery week from the bike, but it's like a it's an opportunity for your body to rest. And so you have to honor that. Um, and so I think what you said, which is, you know, just really being kind of smart and trying to maintain a balance, you know, throughout you know, all time is, uh, is probably the best approach to have success across, um, your different responsibilities
1: and interests Mm -hmm. for sure. All right. Uh, this next question comes from Isaac from IG land. I'm not sure where he lives. Um, but he says, what do you do the night before and morning of races? So I'm, I'm guessing maybe this is like uh, night before race planning and maybe meals. And then like, what is your morning routine typically look like?
2: Yeah. I guess if we're, if we're talking about pre-race meals, uh, the night before it'll depend on the distance of the race. If it's just, if it's a, a race, that's going to be under four hours and the likelihood of bonking is low, uh, which typically a race under four hours, I, I would hope for most people, the likelihood of bonking is low. And when I say bonking, I'm talking about glycogen bonking, like running out of carbohydrates. Um, then I'll, I'll probably eat a fairly normal sized meal that's mostly carbohydrates, but I'm not I'm not getting myself overly full, I'm just getting myself to the point where I'm satisfied. I would say the same thing with breakfast the morning before. I usually try to eat uh, two to three hours before the race, and same thing. I'm not trying to be full, I'm not trying to be hungry, I'm just trying to be satisfied. You don't want to be on the starting line with a full stomach, and you also don't want to be on the starting line feeling like you could eat a full meal because you're hungry. So. I would say the diff. Uh, I, I switch it up a little bit if it's going to be a very long distance race where there is a, a significant chance of bonking. Um, and I'll probably the night before I'll actually eat to the point that I'm that I'm stuffed. Like I don't want to eat more food, but I'm forcing more food into my mouth. And that food that I'm forcing into my mouth is is some sort of carbohydrates. Um, and if I'm, if, you know, if I'm a little bit more full than I would like to be on the starting line, it's not necessarily a big deal because usually those races don't start so fast that you're going to have some sort of GI issues. And, and, you know, there's, there's, there's plenty of time, um, throughout the day to digest that. Um, especially cause you know, long races like that, usually if you're going to have GI issues, it happens later in the day um to, to add a couple
0: of things to that that are non nutritional based um and maybe maybe even like more overlooked is uh i i think like allowing yourself both like the time the preparation to sort of be relaxed in in both of those times is is really important i think there's there's really good research on um what happens when you do like cognitively demanding or stressful things before an event um And the research shows that your time to exhaustion is reduced, like, significantly. Um, So I think, um, you know, like, the morning of the race, you know, maybe before you wake up, maybe the night before, know where you're, like, going to park, for instance. You know, like, if you're heading to, like, a Criterium and, you know, it's in, like, a major urban setting, stuff like that can actually reduce a lot of stress. And so just doing whatever you can to um, make your life easy on race day and, um, you know, the night before making sure you take care of things so that you're not, you know, staying up late, you know, at the last minute, trying to trying to get your stuff ready is, I think, goes a long way. Um, and if you can be really relaxed, I, th- I think your, your
1: performance is just going to be that much higher. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll kind of echo that. And uh, I just like to think of it as try and minimize the amount of decisions you'll have to make on race morning or even like the, you know, the night before your race, yeah, be you know, so trying to utilize like two days before or the, you know, the morning before uh, race day to get everything prepped, you know, check the weather know exactly what you're going to wear. So that way on race morning, you're not like stepping outside and like, Oh, it's a little colder than I thought. So I'm going to wear extra clothes. Like, no, you just know this is what the weather's going to be. My clothes are already set out. You just put them on. Um, you have your mm-hmm. nutrition already laid out. So you, you don't have to think about, you know, do you want to bring those extra three gels or not, or do you have to fill up your bottles, things like that, you know, try and, try and minimize the amount of decisions you have to make. Uh, like Andrew said, know the schedule really well, know the layout of the race really well. Um, you know, know exactly what time you need to be at the start line. So you're not checking the schedule again and, in, you know, double check in and maybe getting there a little bit extra early. Cause you're not sure it's like, no, just try and try and minimize again, the amount of decisions you have to make race morning um, and that goes for like eating breakfast too. Know ahead of time what you plan to eat. A lot of times you wake up, you know, let's say your race is at 7 a.m. So you're waking up at 4 30. You don't really know what you want to eat at 4 30 because you're not used to eating at 4 30. But if you already have it laid out, you've got your oatmeal or your cereal or yeah. eggs or whatever it is, if you've already got that laid out and you know exactly what you're going to eat, you just go through the motions. <clears throat> And I don't remember what it's called, but it's, you know, it's, I mean, like like Andrew's talking about there, like, you know, reducing cognitive load. It's like decision-making can be significantly more stressful than just going through the motions and, uh, you know, going through a routine. So try and do whatever you can to minimize decision-making. Um, you know, bike prep, don't even touch your bike the day before, or the day of a race. Like that should have already happened the day before. You know, your number's on your bike, uh, or your, your jersey's pinned up whatever, you know, whatever you need to do for race formality. Um, you know, you've lubed your chain, you've pumped up your tires, you know, maybe you check your tires in the morning or whatever, but you already know what tire pressure you're going to run. Anything that could potentially be a decision making process the morning of the race should have already been thought out the day or two before. So that you can just again get up and go through the motions.
2: Yeah. Also I think we can briefly talk about warm-ups. Um, and I think that people need to realize that the shorter the race, the more important the warm-up is, and the longer and potentially more intense the warm-up needs to be. And the longer the race, the less important the warm-up is, and it gets to a point where you shouldn't even be warming up for certain distance races. So, uh, for example, I'll go to gravel races that are... I know going to take seven plus hours and I see people warming up like an hour before the race starts. I don't even do any warm up for a seven hour race, Um, mainly because usually the race starts at an easy enough pace that it's not that big a deal and also I'm trying to preserve all the glycogen I can possibly preserve before the start of the race. Uh, for sure. So my rule of thumb there is is you. It, it depends on whether the start's going to be fast. It, let, like let's say there's a there's a crazy climb like right out of the gate. Then you know even if it's a seven hour race, you may have to warm up because it's just going to be a crazy start. But usually my rule of thumb is if the race is over five hours long, I'm not warming up. If the race is under five hours, I'll do some sort of warm up. And the shorter the race gets, the longer the warm up needs to be. And the more like opener efforts you need to throw in. So let's go to the most extreme example. Let's say it's like a a 20 minute, uh, short track XC race. I'll probably warm up for 30 minutes and do two or three opener efforts where I'm kind of ramping up, uh, the intensity for two to three minutes, you know, going from tempo all the way up to VO two max intensity by the end. Yeah, and um,
0: just to add to that, while we're on the topic, I read actually a pretty interesting paper by Mark Burnley the other day on um, the influence of your warm up on VO2 max kinetics in subsequent efforts. Um, and so, essentially, like by doing some VO2 max, you know, time it has to be above threshold in your warm up when you get to the race and you do that VO2 max effort, that's the first climb of the event. um, You'll actually stay more aerobic because it's changing Mm the O2 uptake kinetics. Um, I I don't know what the mechanism is for that, but, but it was pretty, it was pretty significant. It was, it was cool to see like an actual mechanism for, for why
1: your warm up is important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Next question. Uh, these all came through the ignition Instagram page. So I don't know who submitted them, but we're just going to read through the questions. So what would a training plan look like if you wanted to improve fitness year round without racing?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I, first off, I would say that, you know, sort of the essence of
0: periodization is that we're, we're not improving fitness All the time, per se. Um, Maybe maybe I'm taking the question a little bit too literal, but I think if you want to get, if you want to continue to improve in the long run, you have to accept that there's going to be periods where you're really fit, and other periods where you're resting, giving yourself a break and losing fitness. So I I think um, a big mistake that a lot of self-coach athletes make is that they they do try and just kind of like build continuously, and they sort of fall into this, um, you know, black hole. Um, of just sort of like being fatigued all the time and and eventually stagnating. So I I think my advice would be that, you know, come up with some, some moments of the year where you want to be your fittest, you know, commit to being your fittest there and then, you know, resting a little bit afterwards. So, you know, for instance, um, you know, maybe you live in a place where it's really cold in the winters. Um, You know, you can say like June, July, I want to be my fastest and just committing to that. And then, you know, accepting that you're going to have sort of an off season in the winter and maybe you have a little bit of a break after, after this kind of period where you're really flying. Um, and I think, uh, a key there is, is just not being too greedy, um, you -hmm. know, with your fitness. So, you know, if, if you've seen, you know, 20, 30, 40 watt improvement in your threshold, um, you know, what that probably means is is that you, you probably are going to need a break soon and not not that you should keep pushing and try and go for 50 or 60 watts because it's, uh, it's unlikely to happen if, if you keep pushing for too long, um, you might burn out.
2: Yeah. I got this question a lot uh, over the COVID, uh, 2020 COVID lockdowns, because there were no... Uh, for most people there were no races in 2020 so a lot of a lot of cyclists were messaging me and asking okay so my goal for this year is is not happening uh what do i do now do i just do base training all year or... and my answer to that was go through just go through a normal periodization cycle like you would as if racing was happening uh you know maybe instead of racing you can go for some KOMs or something but um go through a normal periodization cycle. Don't don't uh I don't know, try to do base training all year, try to do build training all year. Um you want your training to be changing over time, even if there isn't some race on the horizon.
1: Yeah, so I yeah, so basically I mean what kind of what you guys are saying is and, and I'll sum it up here is the the training for someone who's not racing shouldn't really look all that different than someone who is racing. But the cool thing about someone who isn't racing is that they can actually follow more of an optimal training plan or I guess it'd be more linear training plan because they don't have specific race demands they're trying to make adaptations for. So you can follow like a pretty linear build progress um, and and periodize it in a fairly predictable way. Uh, but yeah, the, as far as like, you know, trying to improve fitness year round, you know, like what that means is like, you're still following a periodized plan. Uh, and, and kind of to go back to what Andrew said, you know, he was saying, you know, pick a time of year where you want to maybe see peak fitness. I think for some people, uh, you know, th- this is, this approach I think is applicable. Maybe maybe you take, maybe your family has two vacations throughout the year and you want to try and, you know, peak in the couple weeks before that vacation. You know, that way when you go on vacation, you know that's your rest period. You don't have to bring your bike with you. You don't have to bring your running shoes. You just take that as leisurely vacation. You don't have to worry about anything. Um, You know, I see that mistake a lot of times where people do it the opposite way. They, like, stack their peak fitness after a vacation or, you know, in the months after a vacation, and then they're, like, stressed. They're, like, trying to figure out how are they going to get their workouts on While they're on the road and that can be really hard it can take away from the family or you know vacation experience so if you have the luxury to plan when that peak fitness you know period is going to take place try and stack it before some kind of uh you know travels or vacation or something like that where you know you want to just take time off Mm -hmm. all right next question how thoroughly should you clean your bike before racing uh, he says, like, for example, should you do things like overhaul your free hub bearings? So, like, basically breaking your bike completely down.
0: Um, it, it really, so I, you know, I'll answer this as like a cycle cross racer, right? Where there's a lot of um, wear and tear on the bike and a lot of cleaning that needs to be done. And I think um, the answer is, is it, it really depends on how frequently you clean your bike. So, you know, if you're, um, you know, if you're the type of person who, who never, you know, has a mechanic look at their bike and really, you know, check the bottom bracket bearing, check the free hub bearings, all these sorts of things, then you probably, you know, really need to dedicate, you know um, maybe some significant time um, before your race to, 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 look into this stuff. I, I think, yeah, I mean, you should definitely look at your free hub bearings if it's something that you never look at. Um, and I think that you need to give yourself, you know, probably, you know, two or three weeks, maybe even. Um, so, you know, if you bring your bike to the shop and, and realize that you need new free hub bearings, maybe they're a weird size and they're going to take a couple weeks to order. So I think, um, the, the big thing that you don't want to do is be that guy who comes to the shop the day before the race, you know, and begs or has to pay extra for the, for the mechanics there to, to work on your bike the night before because you were unprepared. Um, the other thing too, for me at least is that, um, you know, I don't want to erase any brand new components, and that includes like bearings or a chain the day of a race. So, with you know, with bearings, you know, they actually get a little bit faster as they they break in. You know, those seals loosen up a little bit. Some of the grease, you know, just gets distributed. Um, and with stuff like chains, you know, you want to make sure that they're that they're meshing well with with you know an old cassette or old chain rings but a new cassette, um, things like that um, sometimes don't meet well. Um, and just because you put a new thing on your bike doesn't mean that it's all going to work well. So I would like to just kind of have some time to, um, you know, make sure everything is, is working smoothly. And I've kind of like running through some, some hard, some hard efforts. Um, you know, and if we're talking just specifically about cleaning, yeah, I don't know. Um, I think it's important to show up and, and, you know, have a clean looking bike, especially if you have a bike sponsor, for instance, Need to represent that well, but
2: yeah, for anyone who's in yeah, the, uh, I think. ahead, Dylan? <laughs> I was going to say for anyone who's in the the chain waxing camp, uh, which I'm I'm definitely in the chain waxing camp as as of right now. Um, uh, the the whole hot melt waxing process with the c- crock pot is is you know t- quite time consuming. Um, considering that basically what you're doing is lubing your chain and the traditional way to lube your chain is to just drip some lube on it and that's it. And maybe wipe it down, um, versus taking your chain off, degreasing it, putting it in, in a crock pot with hot wax, taking it out, letting it dry, putting it back on, you know, Mm uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll redo that whole process every every time i race or every time it's an important race if it's just a training race i won't do that but if it's an important race i'll redo that every every time i have a race even if the chain like even if the wax uh is still good for you know another couple hundred miles i want it to be uh i want it to be as fresh as possible um So that can be quite time consuming, but at least, you know, and this is kind of probably personal. Like how, how much do you care about that extra watt of savings? You know, some people are like, ah, it doesn't matter at all. Some people really care about it. Um, That's something that I do before every single race. Yeah. Yeah. And I,
1: I think it's a good habit to get into, to try and ride your race bike Uh, As much as possible before your next event. So, like, you know, for some of us or, you know, myself, I race multiple disciplines. So I've got any, at any given time, three or four different bikes that I'm racing on, you know, a couple mountain bikes, a couple gravel bikes, cyclocross bike. But if I know I've got a gravel race coming up, I'm going to try and spend as much time on my gravel bike in the week or two leading up to that one to get, you know, reacclimated to the position, but also to start figuring out like, okay, is there anything that I need to fix or, you know, uh, maintain on my bike, uh, before the race. So like last night, for example, I couldn't shift into my 11 tooth cog, uh, which maybe that affected my sprint at the end. I don't know, but I figured it out a little too late, you know, halfway through the race that my 11 tooth cog was skipping. So, uh, as soon as I got home last night, first thing I did, it was 9:30 PM. Like I just wanted to go home, eat some food and go to bed. But I, I did at least spray down my bike cause it had been raining on the gravel for uh, most of the day. So the gravel was super wet. So I like rinsed my bike down real good, made sure I got all that grit out of there. Uh, and then today I put on my list like things to do is check my cassette. I don't know why my cassette was skipping, that 11 tooth cog, but I'm going to check it today instead of waiting till like next Monday night, you know, to figure out like, Oh shoot, I never looked at my 11 tooth cog. What if I have to sprint Ken Pike again? I don't know. Um, like I'm going to address that today. So that way it's fresh in my mind. I get it out of the way. If I need to go get a new cassette, I've got time to do that. So that's another tip is just try and spend time on that bike before your race. Mm Hmm. Okay, next one. How do you structure training to come back from injury? Uh, this person said they just broke their clavicle at the end of base season. Andrew, got any tips there?
0: Yeah, so my my two top tips on this one, and I can relate if you've been listening for a while, this happened to me. You know, almost in like sort of the same sequence as well. It was sort of around base season. Um, tip one is... Um, you know, talk to your, um, your surgeon, your PT, whoever, you know, whoever has um, authority on the issue about getting onto the trainer again as quickly as possible. Um, recovering from these injuries, especially if you get surgery, does require a significant amount of energy. So, um, you know, you really need to manage your nutrition well during this period because if your body is trying to recover, but you're also trying to not lose too much fitness because you're getting back on the trainer quickly. Um, you probably really need to, to up the calories that you're consuming. Um, so that, that would be my first step is, is try and not lose too much, you know, fitness in the, the immediate wake of this happening. Um, because getting back on the bike one week earlier might mean, you know, um, you have another week. Um, earlier that you're, you're back in shape. Um, but then my second tip is to sort of manage expectations and try and be really realistic about, um, you know, when you're going to be good again. So, um, you know, all of that base training you do is, is definitely not lost. So I don't think you have to worry about that. Assuming you can kind of get back on the bike, you know, a week or two weeks, um, you know, after, after the injury, um, or at least back on the trainer. Um, and so, you know, I would say you probably need to, you know, adjust your timeline maybe by a, a month, you know, in this situation. You know, if you've done a full, you know, let's say two or three months worth of base and you, you've really built up some fitness, you're not going to lose all that over the night. Um, you know, so maybe you you revisit, um, you know, base three or base two, you know, something that you can you maybe handle on the trainer, you um, you know, that doesn't require you to like throw your bike around too much, um, given that you'll, you'll be still healing in the collarbone region. Um, you know, and just add, add that time, um, back to when you think you'll be good again. So, you know, if your goals were in June, you know, maybe, maybe readjust your goals to July. Um, and I would say like, don't skip through any of the phases of your training because you're going to shortchange yourself there and probably,
1: um, Perform less well than if you if you're just patient and, and reevaluate your goals. Yeah, that was perfectly said. I honestly don't have anything else to add to that. Dylan, yeah, I thought that was great. All right. Uh, so next question: Should training and racing look different for Clydesdale? Hmm. Uh, so for, those I, can- for those who don't know, so the Clydesdale category um, is typically, I think it's most common in mountain biking, I would say. Um, and I don't know what the threshold is, but it's, I want to say it's somewhere around like 220 pounds and above. So we're talking, you know,
2: uh, bigger in stature athletes. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen 200 pounds before. I think it depends on the race, uh, what they consider Clydesdale.
0: Um, the only thing that I can think of is that you, I think, need to do an even better job with your nutrition, especially in training, than smaller athletes. Um, the reason I say that is because typically these bigger athletes are going to have you know, higher absolute thresholds. Um, so they're producing more power, but they're just as limited in how many carbohydrates they can absorb. Um, that's sort of like that those rules are sort of independent of size um and so it's i think for those athletes it's just really easy to get behind on your carbohydrate intake and you know end up end up bonking Mm
2: -hmm. yeah i guess uh one one interesting thing to note here is that uh you could be a Clydesdale because you have a lot of excess body fat or you could be a Clydesdale because you have a lot of, I don't want to call it excess, but you have a lot of body muscle. Um, I actually coach a guy, he's under 200 pounds now, but there was a time where he was over 200 pounds and his body fat percentage was 8%. So well, he he was a, a weightlifter in his past life and now he's a bike racer. So he had a lot of excess muscle. Um, and, uh, and I mean, I guess when we're talking, when we're talking about your upper body, it's kind of like, um, you know, I, I guess it doesn't matter too much whether it's muscle or fat, but if we're, if, if we're talking about the optimal, the optimal Clydesdale, the optimal Clydesdale would probably have a fairly low body fat percentage, just have you know, a ton of lower body muscle and produce a ton of power. Um, so I, I guess what I'm getting at here is, is maybe, um, you know, just because you're a Clydesdale doesn't mean uh, don't think about your body composition and how that could potentially affect performance um like if you if you've got a lot of fat to lose and you still want to race in the Clydesdale category and maybe get in the gym so that you can maintain your Clydesdale status I would say that would probably be the optimal body composition to race at as a Clydesdale yeah yeah and I would
1: say um you know a couple things that you can do to like set yourself up for success on the race course again we're Primarily, I think talking about mountain biking here, I'm not sure of other disciplines that are that have Clydesdale categories, but, um, you know, make sure that your bike is set up, that you've got enough gearing. Um, You know, you're you're likely going to uh, need a, you know, relatively smaller gear at times. Um, So, you know, make sure you've got small enough gear so you can climb up those hills. But also, I think I think pacing is, is a little bit different as well. Um, you, you probably aren't going to have as good of acceleration at the bottom or even at the top of climbs. So trying to ride a little bit more, you know, st- steadier pace, um, also trying to pedal some of the descents a little bit more so you can gain a little bit more momentum down the descents when you can. That's a mistake I see just generally across the border, especially with gravel racing. A lot of people smash the climbs and then they just coast down the descents Kind of like Andrew did in his time trial the other day, <laughs> um, versus like trying to maintain a pretty steady pace. You know, if you're if you're doing 150 watts on a, on a descent, that's still you know recovery or endurance effort. But you're going to gain some momentum and kind of carry that into the next rolling uphill. Um, versus like just you know smashing yourself on the uphill and then kind of you know dying a million deaths on the descent and then repeating. Um, and, and this will also help with your, uh, energy expenditure and, nutrition uptake too. So, you know, you're not expending way too much energy on the uphills. Um, but I think, I think a big thing to think about too, is just remember that there's not a lot that you can do in a short period of time. So, you know, if you are in the Clydesdale category and say, let's say the threshold is 200 pounds, if you're at 210 a week before, don't try and lose 10 pounds in the week before the race to try and you know be at the bottom end of your Clydesdale category. Uh, just know that you're mm-hmm. you know you're not like you're not different from anyone else. you, you can't just uh, try and you know lose a bunch of weight in the in the time leading up to it. but also you know if, if especially Dylan, like you were talking about if you if you are someone who has a fairly like muscular body composition, uh, you might have an ability to take in a little bit more carb- carbohydrate stores. So don't skimp out on like the, the meals leading up to the race day, uh, you know, a couple days before. Make sure you're still eating as much as you can, uh, you know, preloading all of your glycogen stores so that when you come to race day, uh, you know, you've you've got all of those glycogen stores filled.
2: Mhm. Yeah. I, I'm all right. glad that uh oh, I'm go glad ahead, that cycling isn't a uh, I'm glad that cycling isn't a sport where there are typically a ton of different weight categories cause that just seems like a whole nother stressor, you know, that, that wrestlers and, and, and other sports like that talk about, uh, you know, cutting weight for competition. I'm just like, man, I'm glad that cyclists don't generally have to deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. Or
1: bodybuilding. Yep. Bodybuilding, yeah. It's, I mean, it's yeah. interesting and I don't think we're going to go into it on this podcast, but I've always no. wondered, you know, if, if, if that's, you know, if, if they just follow that tradition, because that's part of the norm of the culture. Um, but if they're actually sacrificing performance in the process, but we're not going to talk about that here. That's a can of worms. Right. Uh, so this next question this here. Next so, question. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this question asks, are there unique physiological, uh, adaptation differences between the different disciplines? So track racing, road racing, gravel, mountain bike racing, cyclocross, et cetera.
0: Yes. (laughs) So let's, let's use some like really kind of extreme, um, you know, examples on the spectrum. So like, you know, when you talk about track racing, it really depends on, you know, whether you're talking about endurance track events or sprint type track events. Um, so the sprint type track events would be like, you know, an event like the kilo, It's it's a one minute effort. Um, you know, even the pursuit is, you know, which is a four minute effort is considered sort of an endurance event for the track. Um, you know, in the, the adaptations that we're looking for, um, the type of training we're doing, you know, the type of body we're we're, you know, that's ideal for these events is completely different. Right. So, um, you know, if you're doing a one minute event, you're doing the, the kilo, you know, if you look at these guys, they're, they're huge. I mean, they're spending tremendous amount of time in the gym. And I think they're, they're probably spending very little time doing, you know, endurance type training, you know, they do gym, and then they do extremely hard track sessions. And so, you know, not only are the adaptations that they're looking for very different, but, you know, um, their training is completely different as well. So it's not, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, maybe they're doing more strength training than they're doing endurance training, which is, kind of crazy, you know? And then you take somebody who's like a, you know, a a road climber, road stage racer, or even like a gravel racer, maybe even a mountain biker, you know, and you're, you're almost looking for like the opposite body composition. You know, you're trying to be like, you know, highest power to weight possible, you know, you know, very little, probably even like little excess muscle, um, oftentimes doesn't improve performance in these disciplines, um, tons and tons of endurance training. So it's, it's the opposite, but, um, and I think there are definitely like nuances, um, you know, less broad differences between, you know, let's say like mountain bike and road. Right. Um, so like maybe just like the pedaling style is different. So like the adaptations are going to be different in terms of, um, you know, your ability to produce torque. You know, if you're on the road, there's there's not as much of a demand for, you know, being able to produce a lot of torque, um, you know, because the surface is smooth. You know, we're not trying to like ride in a, up and over a log or a rock. Um,
2: uh, maybe, yeah, I mean, maybe it, much it, more standing. I think another, you know, you you could also probably say that a typical cross country mountain biker, like cross country Olympic hour and a half mountain biker versus a a straight up road climber uh the mountain biker is probably going to be a little bit better at punchy efforts because that's it's kind of what a mountain bike race is you're you're punching up a climb coasting punching coasting punching coasting it's probably closer to what a, a you know a crit effort looks like versus somebody who's a who's a climber or a time trialist
1: Yeah. And I, I would say, you know, to even break it down further, you know, let's say someone like you're talking about, there is a, uh, a gravel racer, but they're prepping for a race like steamboat gravel, where you just have four or five major climbs where you're, you're spending anywhere from 20 to 60 minutes on some of these climbs, the adaptation that that athlete is working towards. And let's take the acclimation out of the equation. We're just looking at the effort, um, that looks a lot different than someone who's prepping for a similar duration race of like, um, gravel worlds. So same, same duration, 150 miles, but gravel worlds is constantly rolling hills. So the gravel worlds athlete might try and mix in a little bit more repeatability into their efforts versus someone at steamboat gravel. You know, they're trying to, uh, e- extend the amount of time that they can spend at, you know, high tempo, low threshold. They're doing a lot of steady state work um, because that's the kind of efforts they're going to see. So, you know, you, you do cater your training based around what type of efforts you're expecting to e- experience at those key events. So, you know, to go back to the question, yeah, the, the adaptations definitely look different across the disciplines, but they also look very different within each discipline depending on the race course, and the race demands. All right, guys. Last question, re- boys. Ready for the last question? <laughs> let's do it. How does one pee while riding their bike?
2: All right. Well, Easy, this, just is not go. Something, this is not something that I've mastered, so let's hear from the expert.
0: <laughs> yeah, so uh, my first tip would be to find a, a gentle downhill. Um, and I think it's important that if you're in a road race or you have a race or, you know, anything that involves a pack that you kind of drift yourself towards the back of the pack. Um, so you don't end up peeing on anybody. It's not a good way to make friends. Um, typically you're pulling over to the right side of the road, um, you know, definitely glancing ahead and making sure there's no objects that you're going to hit in the shoulder. Um, one hand on your left hood, you know, so you have access to your brake if you need it. Um, you got to be careful here because this is your front brake in most cases. Um, and then I like to go um, business over the bibs rather than rolling up a leg, just because it's it's easier to go back and forth. Um, yeah, and you kind of like stand up so you're you're sort of like you know you have the saddle sort of between your your thighs. Weight on the pedals for sure for some stability. Um, you know, right knee pointed out. Um, in some cases, you're going to need a mate to to push you while this happens, which can actually be nice just to kind of have that stability um, to kind of keep you keep you going as fast as you need to. Um, that's actually a preferable situation to doing this on a really steep descent where you're trying to reduce your speed. Um, yeah, that that's really uh, all there is to it. Um, definitely requires some practice um, and you know, some confidence as well. So the better that you can get at this, the easier it's going to be obviously.
2: So I'll say that I I've got everything that you said down. Like I can do all of that. The problem that I have is starting the stream. I don't know how to, I can't physically get myself to start the stream while I'm riding. You got to chill, man. (laughs) That's the key. Yeah, I guess.
0: It's, it's really tough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, and here's, here's another fun, fun one for all of our listeners out there. You know, if, if you see Dylan or, you know, um, one of your homies, you know, setting up, trying to, trying to pee, you know, you can fly by them um, and you can take your water bottle and put it in your hand like where where you'd be peeing from and you can give that thing a big squirt as you pass by (laughs) and it'll get water
1: all over them which is pretty funny
2: right
1: yeah i um i've actually never attempted it so i don't know i don't have anything to add
2: i do have to pee a lot on the bike but i usually just pull off to the side what about what about when you're racing what do you do
1: usually wait till someone else has to go. And then maybe there's like four or five people that stop
2: and then we can form a little group Mm -hmm. to catch back on if need be. Yeah. I usually don't have to pee a lot while I'm racing. Uh, Maybe once in the first, you know, two hours of the race. Um, But if I have to pee, I'm usually the guy, I'm usually the guy being like, Hey, uh, everyone want to stop for a pee break. And then hopefully everybody's like, yeah, let's stop.
3: <laughs>
0: yeah, you can also go up the road. You know, you could tell everybody in you know in the group yeah. you're racing with, like, "Hey guys, I'm not attacking. I'm going to go up the road." You know, right. you build up a little bit of a gap. You stop. You pee, and then you know, as the group is coming by, you hop back on. Or you know, if you're a, a stage racer, you know, something that's pretty common is you just go to the front of the group, you pull over, you pee, um, and then if you can do this within like a you know a minute, let's say, you'll you'll slot back in into the caravan, you know, and then the the key there is just taking your time, moving back up to the caravan, waiting for yep. an opportunity to, to kind of jump back up to the pack. But that's, that's probably like, I see that more commonly. I saw that more at Hilo than, than I saw people like actually peeing off the bike. Yeah, dude. Yeah.
1: Um, and I'm just going to, I'm going to throw this out there. Uh, triathletes have no shame.
2: I always say, like, at Kona,
1: don't don't touch a triathlete's saddle (laughs) because you never know what's going to be in there. But um, if you really got to go and you can't get that stream flowing, sometimes you got to just do it on the bike.
2: I've pissed my shorts before at a 100-mile mountain bike race.
1: I don't know if that makes Dylan a triathlete or not, but (laughs) (laughs) I think we're going to wrap it there. All (laughs) right. (laughs) Sweet. Well, thanks, guys. This was great. Uh, we'll be, we'll be back next week with a traditional topic. We're not sure what it is yet, but, uh, if you have any requests or suggestions, feel free to send us an email or message on Instagram and maybe we'll cover it next week. All right. See you guys. Thanks. Yeah. All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in for the latest episode of the matchbox podcast. Like I said at the beginning, you can send any questions or topic suggestions to info at ignitioncoachco.com with email title, the matchbox podcast. Links to each of our social media pages can be found in the show notes. Tune in next week for another endurance training-related discussion and learn about how you can find that extra match for your next big event. Catch you all soon. Let's go!